Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Although it doesn't feel like it, this is the 500th show that I've done on WBAI since I rejoined it three years ago. I want to thank all of the people who've worked to bring you this program over the past three years, and most of all, thanks to all of you who tuned in. We want to do something special for this milestone, so joining me now is my executive producer, Jesse Lent, and for the next hour, Jesse and I will be discussing a wide range of things that have gone into making those 500 shows, and we will replay a few of our favorite moments. Jesse will also interview me about my background on radio and, and other aspects of my life. So without any further ado, allow me to hand the mic over to my executive producer, Jesse Lent. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Leonard. So great to be here. Uh, congratulations on 500 shows, right? Who thought we could do it? <laughs> well, you just do it day after day after day, and it adds up after a while. How do we know that it's 500 shows? Well, we are going, you know, there's different ways to count it, obviously, because occasionally the show's rebroadcast, occasionally it's repackaged, but we're going by the official amount of podcastable shows that we have done. So unique one-hour shows, of which this is one, and uh, 500. It actually snuck up on me, right? It snuck up on both of us. I, I realized a few, maybe a month ago, that, wait a minute, we've done whatever it was, 476 shows. I had to uh, go into the calendar and count. And then, of course, once we started making plans, we had to keep our fingers crossed that an act of God, so to speak, wouldn't <laughs> kick us off the air, or else we would have to start the uh, the timing all over again. And 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 so fortunately, that didn't happen. Yeah, well, we were kicked off the air for a short time. Everybody was on BAI. Luckily, During that who, of course, yeah, yeah, that may be. We hope that's been resolved. We hope. Yes, <laughs> vote in your local station uh, election. Uh, the the referendum, rather, everybody, please. And that's all I can say about that. So um, where should we start? Let's get into it, Leonard. The last person I think to do this was Tom Brokaw, so I've got pretty big shoes to fill. Yeah. Uh, I'm going yes. to do my best. Uh, I want to go all the way back to your childhood, actually. You were born in Bed-Stuy, spent most of uh, no. your, your... I was or, born or in Jamaica. You were born in Jamaica, Queens. Yes. And you lived in Bed-Stuy in your early years, though, right? Well, first, first Williamsburg, Brooklyn. Uh, until I was uh, about 13 or so. And then we moved to Bed-Stuy uh, to, to uh, Washington Avenue between Fulton and, and Gates. So what are your earliest memories from that time? From Bed-Stuy or, or just a life in general? Um, I was a, at that time, yeah. Well, I was already into things like doo-wop, which, which was the hot... Uh, R&B style of the time. And then when we moved to Washington Avenue, there was a church down the block uh, that had a really good woman's group uh, that was kind of like uh, an, a Brooklyn version of the Ward Singers. And they would uh, broadcast it. They, they had loudspeakers and I would listen to that and I thought, wow, that's terrific. And then because I was listening to doo-wop on the radio, there were any number of stations that played it. Uh, WLIB, WWRL, uh, WNJR, 
And so gospel came on as well. And there was gospel music available in my neighborhood. I got very involved in gospel music. I used to go to one of the local churches, uh, Washington Temple. And then you up you, to, I'm sorry, go ahead. And then up to Harlem and, and uh, at different times, I even convinced my mother to drive uh, me and my, my siblings to Newark to go to this incredible program there. We went everywhere. How old were you when you first heard, when you heard that first choir you mentioned? Oh, I probably was about 13, 14. And what do you think it was that drew you into that music? This is black gospel music in, yeah. what would this be, the the, uh, the 50s? Uh, yeah. Uh, what drew me into it was that uh, listening, well, most of the doo-wop groups were amateurs who uh, wound up getting a record date. But when you listen to some of the gospel quartets, for example, you were hearing professionals who really knew how to do a much more complex and interesting music. And so I started listening to the, the gospel quartets, and then that led me to some of the great women singers, uh, Mahalia Jackson, Marion Williams. Uh, luckily, I even socialized with Marion Williams later in my life and went to some of her her recording sessions. Um, it was uh, it was a music that I really connected to, and I was and then of course I became interested in jazz as a, as an outgrowth of that, and it was also something that was mine in a way. The uh, the other kids at school did not get it. So speaking of school, was there anything in your early education that would? Uh tilt towards your later career, indicate your future radio fame? Did you excel at public speaking in school, for example? No. I, I think the it was just that I was a generalist. Even though I was uh, an art major, and that was my chief ability, uh, I liked to write. Uh, in fact, at one point, my brother and I had to divvy things up. Philip was a very good artist. So we decided at a certain point, okay, I'll take the art, you take the writing. And, and then there was a lot of music in the house. My mother was a professional singer and performer, and um, people will remember her for one of her most famous moments in show business. She was in an Alka-Seltzer commercial, Mamma Mia, That's a Spicy Meatball. My mother played Mama Magadini in that. You mentioned a lot of music around the house. What kind of music were your parents playing? Well, my mother listened to classical music, uh, although she loved Tchaikovsky and Beethoven. And when I became interested in Bach and Mozart, she didn't get it. She called that, um, I don't know, she just thought it was like uh, the way she dismissed jazz. She called it doodle music. So uh, your your taste diverged when it came to, yes. to jazz. But that was part of the things. fun. I, I had hers and I had the things that I was discovering. And Philip had similar tastes. This is your brother, Philip Lopate, of course. Philip got him very well. We also, by the way, we love movies. I used to, I was usually, uh, as the eldest, given the responsibility of taking my siblings to the movies. So we became movies obsessed as well. And Philip has written a lot about the movies. We once made a movie to wrote a movie script together. Uh, but uh, yeah, he became interested in jazz. And when many years later, when uh, he was at Columbia, 
Uh, he was given a jazz show on WKCR. He At that time, KCR didn't have a jazz format. Now it plays a lot of jazz. But then this was the only show. But he brought me in because I knew a lot more about the music than he did. And at a certain point, he just uh, dropped out. And I wound up conducting the show for a couple of years. My first experience in and, radio. And how old were you? Well, I was in my early 20s. And he was in his and, he was in his very late teens. So He's three years younger than I. that for sure. But I wouldn't be much of an interviewer if I didn't follow up on the film that you and Philip wrote. Do you remember anything about the plot? Um, yeah, kind of. But it, who? It was very not really. No, not anymore. <laughs> We're going back was, uh, about six decades, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> you you are forgiven for not uh, remembering every uh, every scene break, but uh, it was fun. Okay, show. <laughs> but that was your only attempt at doing a film together, you and Philip. Yeah, uh, I guess we would have had to buy a camera. <laughs> <laughs> but I was also so appearing. Should, in, yeah, it was a lot it, more expensive then, right? Uh, you can shoot it on your phone. Yeah. I was also, I tried my hand at acting. I was, I appeared uh, as a, uh, a, an older, a man, an older man in, in a play, uh, which was kind of amusing because uh, I was really very much the teenager uh, <laughs> with bad posture in those days, but did the best I could. Would you, if someone offered you a role now, would you be interested in picking the acting back up? Not really, but um, I I wouldn't mind uh, being an MC on a television show. <laughs> it's not likely. So, as you get into your later teen years, you got a lot more into abstract painting, which eventually yeah. led you into studying in London, what was it like to be in London during the swinging 60s, the, the mod era? Well, first I uh, studied with a man named Reuben Tam at the Brooklyn Museum uh, Art School, but also Ad Reinhardt at Brooklyn College when I was at Brooklyn College. I had gone to Pratt earlier, but Pratt was not really into fine arts in those days. Uh, when, I was at, uh, when I was at the uh, Chelsea School of Art in London, uh, I was a big star because I was the Yank who painted these big paintings that were unlike what everybody else sees, all these uptight British artists at the time. Uh, a couple of them started imitating me. I imitating your style? Yeah. In fact, I, I saw this painting that I liked a lot, and uh, I asked the painter uh, what led to it, and he said, well, actually, I was looking at one of your paintings, and I decided to just blow up a five-square-inch part of it. So, of course, what I was liking about it was that it was, it was a copy of part of my own painting. And who was influencing your painting at that time? Well, people like Philip Guston, I guess. Uh, I, I, yeah, Rothko. Later I got to study with Rothko. That was a disappointment because he was uh, really depressed. Uh, this was when I was in grad school. He was very depressed at the time. Uh, his life was falling apart. And so um, somebody suggested that he try teaching again uh, as a way of getting back into the world. But he was teaching like the 50s and he had a class where people were doing things like painting walls and then photographing them and then repainting the walls. And he wanted us to bring paintings in and put them up on an easel. And 
talk about them just as he had in, when he taught in the 40s and 50s. So he committed suicide in the middle of that term. It was very, very depressing, obviously. And uh, the, the, um, the faculty member, the, a, a young man who had brought him in, who was a teaching assistant, uh, had discovered him in his, he had cut his wrists and, uh, and uh, taken a warm bath. So this guy found him in this red water, dead, uh, had a breakdown himself. And then a few months later, he came into our class. Now we had a new teacher. He came to our class and he said to us, I hope you're satisfied. So for years, I've been carrying around the guilt of having driven Mark Rothko to suicide. Do you think that had anything to do with why you stopped painting? No, no. I stopped painting because I realized that while I was always considered one of the best students in, in my classes, I didn't have that other thing, that thing that allowed you to have a vision very much your own. And some problems occurred in my life at the time, uh, a number of different crises that I don't want to go into right now. Uh, but uh, life took over and uh, I continued to draw for years, but I stopped painting at a certain point. Eventually, you returned to the U.S. from London as you said, mm -hmm. gave up painting, and you joined an. Well, I didn't give up painting right away. I went. No, I gave up painting after I was in grad school. After I studied with Mark Rothko, and that was years later. So, so when does advertising enter the enter the picture? Well, I had to, I had to make a living. It's when I was at Brooklyn College before I went to grad school. Um, I got a job working at Gimbel's in the advertising department, marking up ads. We would. Uh, type spec them and then send them off to the newspapers and the newspapers would then uh, make proofs of them, send them back and we would then correct them and then it would appear in the paper. And I did that for years. And then uh, I moved on to an ad agency, uh, again, as a production man, not as an artist. And then that led me to into my writing copy. And then I became an art director at one point. So it all just, it was all very fluid. A number of different agencies. Was there anything you learned in advertising that helped you in radio? <laughs> Not that I could think of other than to lie and cheat, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> no, nothing about uh, brevity or, or turning a phrase. I know personally from working with you for three years, one thing I've learned, uh, for example, is the person who writes the show descriptions and the podcast descriptions, keep it short. You know, we're, as you always pointed out, we're in the entertainment business, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't we want like people to get something from the show, but but certainly long descriptions are not going to make that more likely. <laughs> and since I'm usually interviewing, uh, I feel that my the reason that the guest is there is because the guest is important. And when I watch some of the shows on cable, where the host gives a long speech and then uh, ends it by saying, "Am I right?" Uh, that really makes me uncomfortable. I want the guest to express an opinion. Sometimes I can disagree. I can push him or her in a different direction, but it's not the same thing as me being really the focus of the whole thing. I, I like interviewing. I like finding out what other people are thinking and what they have to say. It's a good gig. 
getting back to our interview, one thing that I don't think a lot of people know about you is that in addition to visual art and even beyond your experience with gospel music, you have a pretty lengthy musical background from singing at the synagogue you attended as a child to pitching songs at the legendary Brill Building to eventually working at a record label. Can you talk about the music uh, that the, the role that music's played in your professional life over the over the years? Well, I was uh, in a famous uh, Hebrew choir, the Silberman's Choir, sang for presidents and top top people over the years there and was a boy soprano and one of the stars of, did you sing of, for any presidents yeah i i i sure i did uh, who knows who it was now i was uh <laughs> i was 11 12 13 14 i quit right. when my voice changed right, around right, right. fifth about 14 or so uh and then i was in the all city choir and uh then uh I went in, in high school with my best friend at the time, Roy Markowitz, who is a drummer who later became Janis Joplin's drummer, among others. And he's he's the drummer on Bye Bye Miss American Pie and whatever else. But at that time, the two of us were, as I said, we were into doo-wop. And so we started writing songs. And uh, we went to uh, Harold Records with one of our songs, and Harold took it. And uh, it was supposed to be recorded by the turbans who were a big group at the time but everybody in school kept on asking us when's your record coming out when's your record coming out and we got impatient we took the song back and nobody else wanted it although we went it was an interesting time we would meet all the top executives at record companies like atlantic and uh, we would actually sing the song sometimes until we finally did a demo and um we uh, we did a demo uh, of a couple of songs uh, in a recording studio where a, a very famous singer songwriter was also uh, was recording some stuff his own demos and they said uh, can we just stop a little bit and uh, and play this these kids thing and he you could see how pained he was listening to our song but it never went anywhere. It still was an exciting experience. And then where did where what was the next thing you want to know about my music? Well, well I first just, of all, we no, should no, tell I, people. I know but, that you eventually had something to do with selling uh, yeah. music on television for for a record label. That yeah. Well, first about. let me tell everybody that they're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York ninety nine point five FM and streaming live at wbai.org. Uh, I the uh, what happened is uh, the advertising thing kind of led me into working for uh, a telemarketing company that sold records on television, uh, the kinds of records that um, didn't sell as well in stores initially anyway. So we made Slim Whitman famous and Boxcar Willie, but we also would go back and sell Kate Smith. So the greatest Kate Smith records, the greatest classical music themes of all time, um, great gospel records, uh, and it was a, a, a it was a big success for quite a while until television changed. In fact, until cable came along and ruined everything, because those commercials would run late night usually, or uh, on on times when advertising didn't cost as much. Uh, on all of the all the New York stations, but they were two minute long commercials. Uh, you, you couldn't get them after a while. 
and then skipping uh, forward. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, Sorry. CNN, we, we would run the ads on CNN and do very well. Eventually, the whole thing just uh, disappeared because of a crisis at that company. But I was already gone by then. You broadcast your first show on WBAI in April of 1977. As you mentioned, you had done uh, radio before at, uh, for your brother uh, for the jazz show at Columbia University station WKCR. Do you remember anything about those early broadcasts, your first broadcast at WBAI, for example? Was there a, any kind of aha moment where, where it felt like, wow, I, I, I'm pretty good at this? Well, they told me I was pretty good. Uh, I was asked. BAI had gone through one of its many crises at the time, and uh, they had a lot of airtime to fill, and it was Easter. And uh, a friend of mine, Bill Farrar, who uh, who I'd uh, been been in a college jazz club with, he told he was he did the jazz show there, one of the jazz shows at BAI, and he said, "I know somebody who knows a lot about gospel music. Maybe he should uh, you should ask him to do a show on Easter Sunday." And so I did. I, uh, I really enjoyed it, uh, but I realized I was in over my head. Luckily, a, um, a well-known gospel uh, expert got in touch with me and <laughs> taught me things, Tony Heilbert, and uh, I wound up doing that show for a couple of years. Uh, and then th uh, since the, the station uh, had a lot of time to fill, as I said, some people were actually banned at the time from being on the air later that changed. But anyway, uh, they asked me, you want to try your hand at a talk show? I said, sure, okay. Hey, that was pretty good. You want to do another one? And then by th that September, I was given my own show, uh, a weekly late night talk show on Monday nights called Round Midnight, which featured interviews and freeform discussions on a variety of topics with listeners who called in from midnight to five in the morning. And I had a lot of uh, interesting guests who would come in and say, uh, you know, I don't want to stay more than an hour, but then they'd get caught up with it and uh, they'd wind up staying two, sometimes even more. Uh, and that lasted eight years until March 1985 when WNYC AM hired me to host a midday talk show called Senior Edition, uh, which I co-hosted in part with uh, uh, radio veteran Pekin Fitzgerald. And then later, uh, when they decided that it shouldn't just be aimed at the elderly. It was renamed New York and Company, and then finally the Leonard Lopage show. And, and all in all, I was on WMYC for 42 years, first on AM most of the time. And then after 9-11, uh, because they couldn't split the signal, they put us on FM as well. By that time, Brian Lehrer had joined me, and uh, we became... Uh, this uh, this very successful tandem, and WMYC became the number one public radio station in America. Other than the initial focus being on the elderly, how are some of the other ways that that show changed over the years, uh, New York and Company, into the Leonard Lopez show? Well, it was a weird situation because NYC in those days uh, was still owned by the city, and uh, many of the people who were there were actually civil servants, including my boss, the uh, program director, Larry Orfley. And I started getting bored with just talking about Social Security and illnesses and, and the things that uh, were I'd inherited with the show. I was uh, the, the first host uh, died of a heart attack, Marty Wayne, and I was the third guy they tried out. And I wound up 
being given the show. Uh, although they screwed around with me for a while, but that was typical. Anyway, so um, it was a city-owned station, and uh, my boss, Larry Orfley, had been had been a civil had taken the civil service test, like most of the older people there. Uh, when I decided to try my hand at other things, I wound up booking Philip Roth as a guest, and I went to Larry and said, "We got Philip Roth coming on the show," and he said. Why are you working so hard? You're going to get paid anyway. Inspiring words. <laughs> but it didn't matter. That led to Joyce Carol Oates and then on and on and on. We wound up very soon getting a lot of really interesting people. Uh, and then we started, uh, we wanted to have movie people, but we couldn't get people from Hollywood because they knew that we were, had a, such a small rating at, at that time. But I started getting all big stars from from France, like Catherine Deneuve and Isabelle Huppert and famous French directors. And it was um, and then the word went out and we wound up getting Tom Hanks and people like that from Hollywood. Then on December 6, 2017, you and fellow WNYC host Jonathan Schwartz were both, quote, put on leave effective immediately immediately pending investigations into allegations of inappropriate conduct, according to the WNYC newsroom. Uh, walk us through that day, if you would. Uh, you had showed up to work, right? I was preparing to do a show, and then I was called into my the program director's office, and he uh, said, we're putting you on suspension. Um, the, my union rep was there as well. I asked why. He said, uh, you'll find out. Uh, and, uh, we, well, you know, went on for a little while and then, um, my rep and I left and we went to the elevator because we decided we should talk things over, over coffee outside. And somebody came along and uh, said, no, we don't want you going down the regular elevator. We want you going down uh, the, the, uh, the service elevator. So they took me to the back. I'd never been there before. Uh, it was a way of humiliating me. Later, they they told the union rep that they didn't want me to make a scene, but we weren't making a scene. We were going, we were leaving the building. But it was typical of what was happening at that time. I have no idea why they did the thing in such a malicious way and hinted at all sorts of stuff that they never backed up because they never really charged me with anything. On December 21st, 2017, it was announced that you and Jonathan Schwartz the host of WNYC's Weekend Jazz program, The Jonathan Schwartz Show, and The Jonathan Channel were both fired. How well did you know Jonathan Schwartz? Do you have any idea why WNYC management suspended you both for the same amount of time and fired you both on the same day? Well, it was already following on the uh, heels of uh, a, uh, a couple of other cases. Other people have been fired or suspended. John Hockenberry, for example. He was a pretty big star. Uh, so... I guess it was just a, uh, it was an opportunity to, uh, for whatever reason they want to get rid of me, many people have conjectured uh, that it was because I was getting old, uh, that they wanted to change the, to the tone of the show and make it more um, young friendly. And also I was, re I had a pretty decent salary at that point. I had started off making no money, but I'd been there quite a while and it was a union job and I had an, a nice salary. So uh, I don't know why I've spoken to Jonathan about it. He never really w was clear about what they charged him with. But you know, the only thing they charged me with was 
uh, saying that, uh, telling somebody that an avocado, uh, the, the Nahuatl word for avocado was testicle. At the time of and, the firing, WMYC spokesperson Jennifer Hulan Russell wrote the uh, Russell, New York Public Radio, I'm quoting now, New York Public Radio has terminated the employment of Leonard Lopate and Jonathan Schwartz following two separate investigations overseen by outside counsel. These investigations found that each individual had violated our standards for providing an inclusive, appropriate, and respectful work environment. Were you ever told what these investigations uh, overseen by outside counsel uh, found? Well, first of all, I, I learned that they had been searching around for stuff for over a year. But I was uh, sent to two different lawyers who then uh, asked me uh, all sorts of questions. And when it turned out that I hadn't done any of the things that they assumed I had done, uh, then they moved on. And, they, and one of them... Uh, brought up the avocado and also brought up another thing where I had told uh, a somebody about an experience I'd had at WBAI doing a late night show, that late night show, where I had a, a famous porn star on who's, uh, who asked if I wanted her to take her clothes off. And I said, nah, it's okay. Uh, it's, I've, I've, I was an art student. I've seen a lot of naked women. Let's talk about the business. And then uh, it was fundraising time, and uh, years the, the next time we did fundraising, uh, people called and said, we're not giving any money until Lope takes his clothes off. Uh, so I told that to somebody, and that was actually brought up as one of the, the offensive things that I had done. So when we left, the, when I left the uh, lawyer's office with my lawyer and the union rep, they looked, they said, if that's it, we don't have any problem here. Well, the next day I was fired. Were you ever told who made the allegations against you? No, but it was assumed that there was one very unhappy uh, producer who was on loan from another show, who everybody tried to avoid, uh, that uh, she was uh, just unpleasant, uh, and that she may very well have... Uh, been the one who who's told them things, but you know, uh, the, uh, yeah, I like to joke around on occasion. You never know who'll be offended, but uh, the that offense that WOC cited about the derivation of the name of the avocado wasn't even a joke. I was just mentioning something that NPR had reported on a few years earlier. But you know, I'm not omniscient, so I can't see into the hearts of everyone who ever worked for me. And I've done my best to treat my colleagues with respect. It pains me to think that uh, I, I may have even made somebody uncomfortable. But to give you an idea um, of how it worked the other way, six women who had produced segments for me over the years uh, sent letters to the New York Times in my defense. And, and of course, the Times, they also sent letters to uh, Laura Walker, the president. They got back a form letter from her. The Times didn't, even, didn't print or even acknowledge any of their letters. And interestingly, those women and two of the men who'd produced segments uh, all volunteered to help me do this show here on WBAI. Uh, so there we are. And many thanks to all of our segment producers who we honestly could not do this show without. Uh, do you think there was a culture of disrespect towards women at WMYC, as some reporters have speculated? Yeah, including the, the guy who uh, who fired me. He was... 
he had had an affair with one of the uh, with one of the staff. I didn't. On the day of the firing, I didn't New even York socialize with I didn't even socialize with any of the staff because I felt it would have been inappropriate. On the day of the firing, New York Public Radio released the following statement, not attributed to any one person. Quote, the investigation into Leonard Lopate's conduct was prompted by recent allegations of inappropriate behavior following a previous substantiated investigation in February this year of inappropriate remarks made by Lopate to staff. That previous investigation resulted in one-on-one -on -one anti harassment training for him and a warning to Lopate that he was creating an uncomfortable work environment. Can you describe the anti harassment training you received and what you were told about these allegations against you? Well, I was sent to somebody who then went through a list of things and I said, No, no I never did that. No, I never did that. No, I never did that. That was uh, one of the things that I was uh, referring to earlier. And that was the end of that. It was there wasn't really any anti-harassment training because uh, they didn't find any harassment. I, look, it was I think it was all predetermined. They had decided they were going to get rid of me for whatever reasons they had, and uh, and they just you know when you say inappropriate behavior, people can imagine whatever they want to imagine. I'd so, like to list some of the things that it's been reported you said to people working on your show please. and give you a chance to respond to them since that uh, has never happened, at least on our airwaves or anyone's to the best of well, my first knowledge. First of all, should, let me tell people what they're listening to. They're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Okay. okay, as you Jesse mentioned- Jesse Lent is interviewing me. <laughs> yes, my name is Jesse Lent. I'm Leonard Lopate's executive producer. And right now we're giving Leonard a chance to discuss the WNYC uh, firing, which is something uh, he has not done, at least with this level of depth before. Well, I couldn't. Uh, and, and, and I'll get to that in a little bit. Go ahead. We'll get to that in a moment. And and to be clear, yes, uh, I I was not Leonard's producer at that time. So I am uh, and, and, you know, I, unfair to call me a neutral party, but I do not have any insight into this. I am simply asking questions that Leonard has not seen. Okay. Okay. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, it was you told the New York Times that you once used the word testicle in a colleague's uh, presence while explaining that the avocado derived its name from the Aztec word for the body part, uh, something you had seen in a segment on that station, but deny making the hand gesture that WNYC News alleged you made? I don't even know what the hand gesture would have been. Okay, moving on. I mean, you say, you, say that, you say that the Nahuatl word for uh that w was used for, for avocado was well the nuatl word was avocado how does that how, what hand gesture goes with that do not know yeah well neither do i okay according to wmyc news you were conducting an interview about undocumented immigrant women brought to the U.S. and forced to perform sex acts at one point the producer alleges that you muted your mind microphone and said to the producers in the studio, quote, sounds like how I treat my staff. The report said you called it your Groucho moment. Do you remember that happening? Yeah, I do. I, it was a, a stupid joke. But it, it wasn't do anything that I did. Oh, yeah, of course, because it was, you know, being Groucho, being wise ass. 
but it wasn't the way I treated my staff. So it, everybody understood that it wasn't really, uh, it, it didn't have much meaning. I'm amazed that anybody even thought about it after that, you know, so According minor. to the same report, another producer alleges that you sexually harassed her by saying, quote, I didn't know you were so bosomy in, the, in that dress. Never happened. Uh, did you say that? Never. Did you ever did you ever comment on your staff's appearance in that? No. In fact, uh, bosomy wasn't even a word in my vocabulary. No, never. I never talked about people's uh, bodies. I never invited. You know, I had a, a number of very attractive women work for me over the years. I never asked any of them to go out for drinks afterward. I really understood that you can create a toxic environment by crossing the line. And what I really wanted was to have as good a, uh, an environment as possible. My office had was all glass enclosed. So, you know, it was everything was on the open, was totally open. We were hearing stories of other people, but and people were always shocked, but not me. Sorry. Another I'm telling you, the reason they got rid work. of me was because I was old and getting a lot of money. Just two more of these. Another former producer okay. who worked on the program in the 2000s told WMYC News, quote, he pushed boundaries and sometimes it was OK and sometimes it wasn't, unquote. For example, she 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 recalled that while crawling under your desk to plug in your well, while she was crawling under your desk to plug in your computer, you said, quote, get off your knees or people will get the wrong idea. Do you understand why that could offend some people? Not really. I mean, uh, she was under my desk. Uh, I was sitting not that. I mean, if you'd looked in the in the in the room, you would have seen something that would have been kind of questionable. So I said, please d get up so the people won't get the wrong idea. She was plugging in something in my computer. If that's offensive. Fine. Yeah, go ahead. No, please finish. I didn't know that was it. I didn't suggest we go any further. I just said, please get up before people get the wrong idea. What is that really fireable? I'm sorry. Finally, I'd like to read you an excerpt of this February 5th, 2018 report by Boris Kachka of The Cut. Quote, Boy. we had an, he's uh, quoting a book publicist. We had an, an informal policy, says one book publicist. We'd actually tell our female authors, heads up, he will stare at your boobs, wear a turtleneck. She also experienced his attentions firsthand, putting together a dinner party for an author. She invited Lopate, but declined his request to bring a date. When he arrived solo and noticed an empty chair next to hers, he plopped down on it, irritated, and announced, quote, you will be my date tonight. She was less than half his age. Lopate spent the next couple of hours ogling her breasts and flirting, quote, like a Benny Hill cartoon, she says. Toward the end of the meal, he was more direct. I'd love to take you out. The publicist excused herself to go to the bathroom where she texted a male friend to ask if he'd come by and pretend to be her this boyfriend. It's a total fabrication, Finally, and I've written to him and said, it out you are and explained so to her boss who corroborated her story who did that she'd have to leave for a party early it, it says finally she sprinted out this is the last line finally she sprinted out and later explained to her boss who corroborated her story that she'd had to leave her own party early lopate did not respond to multiple requests for comment would you like to comment now sure well first of all it never happened i never went to that party it never happened on top of it all uh i did not look at uh yeah it said that 
women, it was suggested that women wear uh, uh, turtlenecks or something. I don't look at people's bodies. I look at their faces because when I'm interviewing somebody and really you have to be focused during an interview, I look at their eyes. Their eyes tell me, hey, this is a, something I'm interested in. Or they tell me, I don't, I'm not sure I want to go there. And that would affect the way my, I would uh, work at my, my follow-up question. I wrote to Boris Kochka and said, you are lucky that I never sued you for libel. I couldn't write to him. I couldn't complain at the time because of, of the circumstances, um, which we can get into in just a moment, because I know you wanted to ask me about the first guest I ever had on. Yes, uh, this will on- be a great time. Reggie, are you there? Can you play clip one, please? This uh, is after the WNYC firing. You returned to the air on WBAI. Uh, uh, on uh, July uh, 26, 2018, five months. All right. Yeah, yes. This is when you, th- excuse me, this is uh, your your debut on July 16th, 2018. Reggie, over there, let's, let's listen to that clip. I'm so pleased you could join us. Oh, I'm delighted and very flattered that I'd be your first guest. And I hope this goes well. I, I'm among those who are still very mystified by what happened at WNYC. I won't push you on going into that, but it's uh, it's left a bad taste for many New Yorkers, and so this is this is wonderful. But looking at that list of things that you've done, it's obvious you've really been around. And have mm-hmm. I left anything out? Now, this was oh. the first show that Leonard and I did together again on July sixteenth, two thousand eighteen, with journalist Clyde Haberman, our first guest. And I think a lot of people, Leonard, were confused why you didn't uh, take the bait, so to speak, uh, to, and, and respond to the allegations being made against you. So why didn't you? Because I was negotiating my severance pay with WNYC at the time. They had offered me 30% severance pay, and uh, and my union uh, rep and my lawyer were, were uh, fighting it. Uh, so they told me, that I couldn't discuss the situation because it might affect the negotiations. And then, and that's what, uh, I, that's why I didn't respond to Boris Kochka either, because at that time I was uh, told that I couldn't talk about it. And then when an amount was finally settled on, WMYC insisted on a non-disclosure agreement. And I think it's obvious that the party that insists on an NDA is the one that feels it has something to hide. Your firing is often discussed in reference to the Me Too movement uh, of women empowerment, speaking up against women who have been uh, sexually harassed, sexually assaulted. How do you feel about the Me Too movement after everything? I was always a supporter of it. And I was stunned when the New York Times recently in an article that had absolutely nothing to do with me, uh, it had to do with uh, changes at WMYC more recently, added at somewhere down the line uh, that I had been fired for sexual harassment. Now, I don't know why it was even put in the article that would, was rather gratuitous, but WMYC uh, told people, if you call, we'll tell you that there was nothing sexual about the reasons that Leonard was fired. So, uh, you know, the, all of, uh, I'm very much a, 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 a sympathetic to the, the Me Too movement. I don't think that, that people should take advantage of their positions uh and 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 abuse their staff okay so 
Now, as I said, six women. Let's get into talking about rub- these these five hundred shows. Uh, okay, Reg, wait, wait, I just want to say that six uh, women, please. six women who produced segments for me over the years, sent letters to the New York Times. In my defense, it never happened. They work for me. Unfortunately, two of them have had been forced to drop out. So I now have four of them working for me. The others had to get jobs uh, to pay the bills. But um, if, can I send out a little appeal? If anybody out there want, would like to try a hand at, at uh, work, producing segments on our show, uh, get in touch with Jesse or me by email. Absolutely. I mean, our show, as I said before, we run on segment producers, many of whom are volunteers. And so we're always looking for people who like the show and like our format and like to read or watch documentaries. Uh, You can reach me. My email is jesse at wbai.org, J-E-S-S-E at wbai.org or Leonard Lopez pate at wbai.org and uh yeah send us a resume you don't have to write us a cover letter but if you want to tell us why you like the show or why you want to get involved that's always great to have and uh we would be delighted so let's take a moment here and celebrate one of the musical performances that we've had on the first 500 shows and this was uh, just a thrill for me delphio marsalis and the uptown jazz orchestra we had about 10 people 12 what was it 12 musicians yeah, 12 in our tiny people. little studio yeah. and uh and and so this is them performing the Irish whiskey blues on Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI. <laughs>
Wow. I was very <laughs> pleased over the years uh, to have a lot of great uh, musicians perform live for me. Uh, WMIC had uh, a recording studio. That was done just pretty much in the studio, but it was fabulous. But over the years, I had Vince Giordano's Nighthawks, Bill Charlap, Chick Corea, Tommy Flanagan, uh, Barry Harris, uh, Ahmad Jamal, uh, Jason Moran, Marcus Roberts, uh, McCoy Tyner, Elvis Costello, Randy Newman, uh, Andy Statton, uh, they might be Giants, Junior Walker and classical people, Eric Eroica Trio, Ellen Grimaud, Orpheus, the Takat String Quartet, just some. And then all of the uh, amazing guests that I was able to talk to over the years, including, uh, well, I said 42 Nobel Prize winners, including two uh, former presidents, Jimmy Carter and Barack Obama. And uh, I've had uh, the uh, I also interviewed the current president, Joe Biden among others. A uh, great thrill talking to people like Alice Monroe and Doris Lessing. Um, it, it's just been a wonderful experience uh, over the years. Uh, and thank, I'm thankful that I got a Peabody Award, three James Beard Awards, forgive me for bragging, uh, a couple of Associated Press Awards. Uh, Okay. Did I, it's did an amazing it, career. Yes, you, you. I think you, you, uh, you get the the brass ring, my friend. Uh, you know, you mentioned recording studios with with those all those fabulous artists that you had on the Leonard Lopez show. I'm guessing though, you had more than three microphones, which is what oh, yes. our entrenched wonderful <laughs> yes. engineer Reggie Johnson and, had to make and, that magic with Delvio Marsalis and the Uptown Jazz Orchestra. So a major thank you uh, to Reggie Johnson. Yes. We could also not do the show without. And unfortunately, we can't do live music now because we're working from our homes. Another person I want to thank is Charlie Morrow for giving us, gifting us our theme music. And uh, Jesse, it's, we've pretty much run out of time. Any final words? You know, I just wanted to ask you one final question in the spirit, the spirit of this interview. I realized that we ended up taking a lot uh, of time on the WNYC stuff, and I'm glad we did, but uh, we didn't get a lot of time to reflect on this show. I'm just curious how you came up with the format. As Leonard Lopate, uh, the Leonard Lopate show fans know, it was two hours with four segments. Now we're one hour with one segment. When did that uh, concept first occur to you? Well, when I was given the luxury of doing a full hour show and realized that I could have really interesting people talking about interesting things in the past, often I felt frustrated because even with the 40 minute segments with the user, there was stuff that we had to leave out. Uh, I, of course, I, I thought if we get the right people and uh, talk about the right stuff. Uh, an hour is really great. And even now with the hour, sometimes I feel, oh, gee, I wish we had another 10, 15 minutes. That's what I'm feeling right now. And unfortunately, that does. Thank you, Jesse. Jesse Lent, my executive producer. Uh, and you're welcome. The best producer I ever had. I paid him to say that. <laughs> no, no, it's true. That that does bring us to the end of this hour at 500 show on WBAI. If you're new to this program and would like to hear more, you can access all of our past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. And there are also links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to comment on any of our shows, if you just want to say hello, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. 
Before I sign off today, I need to take just a minute to ask you to support WBAI. We're hoping all of our listeners who have the finances to do so will step up and make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give to WBAI.org or by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Do it right now to keep the unique in-depth content that we bring you on the show weekdays from 1 to 2 coming to you on this historic station, the only one New York radio dial that's completely listener-sponsored, 100% listener-sponsored. So please call 212-209-2950. Go online to give to WBAI.org. And from all of us at the station, to everyone who has contributed so far, thanks. And we hope that you'll join us again tomorrow for our 501st show, when journalist Todd Miller will discuss his new book, Bill Bridges, Not Walls, A Journey to a World Without Borders. We'll see you then.